Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. History doesn't have to be boring, buttoned up, or inaccessible. And it certainly didn't end in 1945. It belongs to all of us, and we share and add to it every day. Welcome to the History of Go-Go podcast, where I interview interesting guests, cover a motley crew of topics, and it's a place where you can sit, think, and drink all at the same time. I'm your host, Rob Mellon. Wir wollen unseren alten Kaiser Wilhelm wieder haben. Wir wollen unseren alten Kaiser Wilhelm wieder haben. Aber den mit dem Bart, mit dem langen Bart. Aber den mit dem Bart, mit dem langen Bart. My guest today is German-British historian Katja Hoyer. She is a professional researcher and writer and an expert historian in modern German history. She was born in East Germany and is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in London and a visiting research fellow at King's College London. Hoyer is a global opinions columnist for the Washington Post and has written for History Today and the BBC's History Extra. She also hosts the podcast Tommy's and Jerry's on British-German relations together with the Times Berlin correspondent Oliver Moody. Her debut book, Blood and Iron, the Rise and Fall of the German Empire, 1871-1918, has been well-received by critics and academics alike. And that will be our topic of discussion today. Of the book, The Daily Telegraph says, fluently written and convincingly argued, Blood and Iron is a brilliant account of an important period of history and one that marks the arrival of a major new talent. And we are very pleased to have the talented historian and writer with us today. Welcome, Katya. Hello, Rob. Good to be on your podcast. So if we could start with the Napoleonic Wars, how did they increase the stature of Prussia and the European order? And what impact does that have, if any, on the notion of a unified Germany? I know that won't happen until decades later. Yeah, so before the Napoleonic Wars, you basically have a, a patchwork of German states, and Prussia is one of those, but it doesn't stand out particularly as kind of the most powerful or the most prosperous or the one to sort of lead the other German states, as it were. Even during the Napoleonic Wars, Prussia isn't exactly covering itself in, in glory to start with when Napoleon first kind of becomes a threat. Um, the, the Prussian uh, king, Frederick Wilhelm, is actually, you know, responds quite cowardly to start with and then actually sort of tries to avoid conflict uh, and then gets very badly beaten by Napoleon, um, most famously at the uh, Battle of, of Jena and, and Austerlitz in 1806. Um, so to start with, it doesn't really look as, as though kind of Prussia will emerge as the leading German state. But then once Napoleon comes back from his disastrous Russia campaign, and, and is already kind of limping, if you will. Prussia finally gets a grip and actually rallies its own troops, rallies a militia army behind itself under kind of a, a nationalist theme, if you will. So for the first time, people are being called upon as fellow Prussians and fellow Germans of, of the Prussian king. 
And this also brings a coalition of, of the German-speaking lands together. And, and for the first time, kind of Germans experience a sense of togetherness, basically, against a foreign invader. And it's, it's under the leadership of Russia that this happens. Katya, it is tradition here to accompany the conversation with a special brew. Today, we have Copper Legend Oktoberfest Lager from Jack's Abbey Craft Lagers of Framingham, Massachusetts. Celebrate Oktoberfest this year with this malty, smooth, and exceedingly drinkable lager. Copper Legend is the perfect beer for creating legendary times with legendary people. Remember, the best way to enjoy an episode is with one of our featured brews. This is also my opportunity to ask you to subscribe to the podcast. That's the only way to get the newest shows right away. And to our growing legion of listeners and supporters from thousands of cities and towns in a hundred countries, I'd like to say thank you. And today, I'd like to send a very special welcome to our listeners in Frankfurt, Germany. And now, I raise my Copper Legend Oktoberfest very high. And to the history, the proud history, of the German people, I say cheers. And if we stick in that time just for a little bit, in the Congress of Vienna, it seems like the German people could have gone in any number of ways. It could have been massive decentralization and, of course, the loose confederation of states. Was there any opportunity at all at that point, because of some of the things that you'd mentioned, for unification? Uh, lots of people were hoping for that. So you do already have nationalist movements, particularly among younger people, like students, for example, who are actually hoping that the kind of successful campaign against the French will lead to a unified nation state at this point. And they're bitterly disappointed when it doesn't. There are various options on the table, as you said. You know, Austria is actually still the leading um, of the German states at this point. And it looks like that's not going to change anytime soon. So when the German states do get kind of loosely united, that's the wrong word, but basically form this kind of German confederation, it's actually under under Austrian leadership. So the, the chair of that German confederation goes, goes to Austria permanently. So that would have been one kind of solution, unification under kind of the Austrian um, umbrella. There are also various lands now that come under under Prussian leadership that weren't before. So most famously and perhaps most importantly, the, the Ruhr region in the west of Germany, which which has all of the iron ore and other natural resources. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And so, you know, you could, you could argue that actually it is the Congress of Vienna that gives Prussia the, the means really to, to press forward during this 19th century, which is very much dominated by industrial progress. So in many ways, the decisions that were made at Vienna in 1815 actually allow Prussia to become the, the leading power and press kind of German unification in that direction. I don't think they were quite ready yet for unification at this point, just simply because the these individual German states have, had existed for so long and were each under kind of different royal dynasties, political entities, and so on and so forth, that even free cities and, and things like that. So they were very reluctant to give up their political power individually to, to sort of, you know, subjugate themselves under one Kaiser. What was the nature of that rivalry that you discussed between Prussia and Austria in the decades before, say, 1871? There's a lot of dim dimensions to that. So not least because culturally they're, they're very different. So even today, you still have this kind of north-south divide in Germany. So the, the south is largely Catholic, the north, north is Protestant which is one of the key differences culturally. Therefore, they've gone in very different directions. 
there's also, I would argue, I mean, perhaps I'm a bit biased coming from the North myself, <laughs> but there is a, a little bit of a, a kind of inherent arrogance at the time within the Austrian or Austro-Hungarian kind of dynasties with the Habsburgs in particular as well, kind of, you know, because there's this assumption that they've been the kind of predominant power for so long that they wouldn't have shared power in the in the way that was perhaps necessary and, and happens later under this federal construct basically that Germany becomes. So I think from various different angles though that rivalry between Prussia and Austria in particular is, is culturally dominated. Um but also in the in the way that they envision kind of the German lands to go forward. So Austria is still very traditionally minded. It's very much based on on land ownership, on almost like a feudal type sort of system. Um, whilst Prussia is becoming very modernized, it's very fractured in in itself, basically, not, not all that centralized. And so it has a very different idea as to how to go forward. So speaking of that industrialization specifically, that does lead to increased power, but internally it causes some strife also, some significant social strife. Is the history of Prussia maybe one of failed modernization or industrialization? I think it's a bit of both of Prussia. I mean, you have got um, this incredibly stark kind of inequality between the social classes that comes with industrialization, which causes a lot of strife. So you have got some of the most radical socialists at the time. In fact, socialism, communism as an ideology springs from kind of Prussian ground, if you will. So you've got you know, people like Marx and Engels, for example, the, the 1848 revolutions, and although they are across Europe and, and also across the South, some of the more radical kind of ideas spring from kind of urbanization and the and the urban poverty that come with that. And at the same time, you've got an incredible reluctance from the elites and from particularly the, the kind of old landed gentry, the Juncker class, they're called in, in Prussia who feel that they are not willing to give up power and and perhaps modernize. When you look at what happens, say, for instance, in Britain or in the US or even in France at the same time, there is an understanding there much earlier than there is in in Prussia and then later Germany that if you give the workers something, if you democratize, if you widen the franchise and so on and so forth, that actually combats kind of the more radical strands of socialism. And that takes a while with Prussia to sink in. So the 1848 revolutions are brutally crushed. And then you got get this incredibly kind of aggressive conservative backlash to that in the in the 1850s. And it takes a while for it to sink in that perhaps giving people a parliament, for example, and, and you know, widening the franchise might actually pacify the workers. After that revolution that you mentioned in 1848, is it fair to say that many of the liberal-minded people, if given the opportunity, just immigrated to the United States? And then you have that loss of political philosophy, people who are more Republican-minded. Is that accurate? Is that what actually happens in Germany? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're known as the 48ers, that entire kind of generation of German intellectuals who left the country. And it's not a coincidence that Germany or the German lands become one of the sort of key sources of immigration to the US at the time, because people kind of They've tried 1848, basically, and it, it completely backfired, and, and the backlash was absolutely devastating, not least because it didn't just kind of get crushed using the military, but actually afterwards you get a huge increase in censorship and in kind of just intellectual repression at universities and, and so on and so forth. So that does drive a lot of 
intellectuals into exile. Um, I mean, I mentioned Marx earlier. He's an example. Not to the US. He goes to London, at Paris first, and then London. Um, but that's you know an example. And, and lots of people basically left during that time. And not just intellectuals. You also get scientists and and basically lots of bright and clever people who felt that they were stifled in in the German land. When we think of Prussia, we think of a particular authoritarian orderliness. Is that fair? Uh, to some extent, I would say so. I mean, this was, this goes all the way back to uh, Frederick the Great and his father, the soldier king, also known as Frederick, which isn't helpful. But yeah, so the, that entire time frame where the Prussian, where Prussia basically first becomes a player on the continent in Europe, goes back to the way that the military is performed and then forms a fairly formidable uh, kind of political force in, on the European continent. And because of that, a kind of, I mean, if you if you think where Prussia is in the in the north, in the center sort of north of, of the continent, it has no natural boundaries. And so effectively, because there's no sea or mountains or, or, or kind of big wide rivers to, to cut it off, it is constantly surrounded by enemies and feels that, and that kind of sinks in. And because of that, at the time, nobody really had a standing professional army. Prussia resorts to a, a kind of almost standing militia. So you're constantly getting this like defensive, aggressive, militarist kind of element into people's minds. So if you're like a farmer somewhere in, in rural East Prussia, at the same time, you might have to pick up your pitchfork at any point, you know, and like actually go to war. So this is something that sort of seeps into society a little bit. And at the same time, the civil service is completely reformed under those two as well, Friedrich and his father, to uh, basically form this incredibly disciplined, loyal, professional body of, uh, way before any most other states do it, of civil servants that are uh, kind of working for as an early version of the state effectively. So therefore, yes, I would say there's something to that, this kind of idea that discipline, loyalty, obedience, orderliness kind of becomes a, a Prussian thing is, is very much there from the outset. If we move forward a little bit, start talking about some individuals, would you provide, you know, just a basic background of this larger than life character, physically large Otto von Bismarck? What were the talents that he had or maybe the connections he had or the positioning that allowed him to gain political power? Sure. Um, gladly, actually. I'm a bit of a Bismarck obsessive myself, I think. <laughs> yeah, he really was a larger-than-life character. Even, I mean, he was born in 1815, so that fateful year when Napoleon was finally beaten and, and sort of uh, grew up in the, in the spirit of that. So you still have very much this kind of glow of nationalism all across Prussia when he's born. And his parents tell him terrible stories about how the French behaved when they when they occupied the town um, that, that he was born in. And there's a there's a sense that his childhood is kind of that that forms the background to that or the backdrop to that. Um, and at the same time it turns out pretty quickly that he's a very clever. So even his teachers are already saying that very early, particularly good with words, both written and, and kind of verbally. But at the same time, he also turns out to be a bit of a kind of wild child, even when he's young. So he's, he gets into trouble at school. And when he goes to university, he doesn't really kind of find much pleasure in, in doing what everybody else does. He always has to go over the top. He gambles excessively. He's got one kind of affair after another with 
different women, loses a lot of money in the process, and he's still bored at the end of that. He still sits there and goes, "Is this is this it?" So you know, even when he when he's sort of in the eighteen thirties and forties, when he's still relatively young, he's already kind of quite out there. But because he's the second son of his Junker family, there isn't really a, a kind of ready-made path for him. He wasn't supposed to sort of just take over the his father's estate. So his father is a Junker as well, one of one of the Prussian landed aristocracy, lots of land, and and basically the his his older brother was meant to take that over. So there wasn't a ready-made kind of career path for him. So he tries all sorts of things, becoming a civil servant, going in the army, and just gets bored with everything. And then he's just lucky that one of the local MPs, so there's this parliament, rudimentary parliament that gets formed in the wake of 1848, gets ill and basically asks Bismarck as one of the local nobles to just step in whilst he's unavailable. And suddenly Bismarck realises actually it's the sort of cut and thrust of, of politics that he gets really enthused by. Apparently he came home and immediately told his wife, this is it, this is what I want to do. Like, you know, that just the... The intrigue, the backstabbing, the forming and breaking of coalitions, all of that, Bismarck is all over that. Um, and other people realise quite quickly that he's very good at it. And so he sort of you know, becomes quite powerful to the point where actually the king's quite worried about him and, and sends him off first to St. Petersburg and then to Paris as the Prussian ambassador, just to give him something useful to do, but also have him away from, from the court. Yeah, and then he, he uh, eventually is needed because the, the Prussian king um, in 1861 runs into a crisis where he needs parliament to pass off military reforms and they don't want to do that. And Bismarck gets called back to solve this crisis. It seems like one of his great talents, he has a terrific eye for human nature. And then as a chess player, he makes a move and he has already anticipated what can happen from that move. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Um, he's certainly a, a brilliant sort of tactician, um, but also a completely ruthless one. So everyone that's ever had any dealings with him sort of said that he uses the whole repertoire of things that you can do, so including breaking down in tears, for example, which isn't <laughs> something that you'd kind of associate with modern politicians. Or people are just embarrassed and then don't really know what to do with that and just give in. Or the nuclear option is always kind of threatening to resign because he makes himself utterly and completely indispensable in every position that he's in um, and then just goes fine I go then at which point people <laughs> kind of give in and say no 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 don't go you know whatever you want to happen we'll just do it <laughs> but yeah even in parliament apparently anything from bullying to nepotism so he installs his son for instance as foreign minister once he's in power so those kinds of things there's a lot of unsavory stuff going on as well but it seems to work what were the political dynamics that eventually will lead to a unified Germany. So the a lot of people have been asking for that, certainly since the Napoleonic Wars. So there's a constant and steady clamor for a unified Germany from intellectuals largely. So there's they're still arguing kind of from a cultural point of view that a, a unified Germany should exist. That alone wouldn't have done it, not anytime soon. But on top of that, because of industrialization and the kind of connectivity that comes with that. So you need your resources in one place, you may have your your workers living in a different place. Um, you know, you want to trade with other countries, so you need to standardize like units and measurements and things and currency and things like that. So because of that, you suddenly have a lot of people who are interested in unification from a monetary point of view. So this gets the middle classes on site. And they're they're basically saying, you know, let's have a unified Germany so that everyone can make more money. So that's kind of two groups. 
And then lastly, you get people like Bismarck who think, actually, I'm not a nationalist, but I do think this is good for Prussia, um, because ultimately, if, if you can use kind of a unified extension as or kind of a unified Germany as an extension of Prussian power, then, then this works for us as well. And that's sort of where this is going. But even so Germany is unified in 1871. In the late 1860s, so literally just two or three years before, Bismarck still sits there and says this isn't going to happen within the next sort of 30, 40 years. He does. He basically says not in this century, which is quite remarkable. So you sort of see the impact that the unification wars have. Would have been possible. Of course, Prussia takes a central role in that unification. Would it have been possible for a different state, say Bavaria, to take the lead for a unified nation? In theory, yes, but I think because Bavaria has got this unique exceptionalism, I'd say, so this kind of this unique focus just on Prussia, I think the idea of kind of expanding Prussian influence into other areas doesn't culturally occur to them. That's just my personal opinion, but I think that's one of the reasons why. So it's, it's never really tried to actively you know extend beyond its own borders there's a very sort of clear idea as to what Bavaria is and what it isn't um so I think that's that's one reason the more likely would have been Austria I think in terms of unification but the problem is that Austria first so far behind at that point because they stuck with their old-fashioned model of both politics and and the economy so at this point the Austro-Hungarian Empire is still very much agrarian, it's feudal, it's, it's old, old-fashioned. And Bismarck famously said at some point he doesn't want to shackle his trim Prussian frigate to this old uh, kind of ocean liner that is, uh, you know, Austria, basically. So this, this, I think, is quite a good image. So you've got this grand old dame of Europe sitting there kind of doing the things that it's, it's always done and it just doesn't work anymore in the modern age. So I don't think any of the other states had this sort of a, audacity, and, and B, kind of ambition to expand in the way that Prussia did. In regards to the conflicts that the Germans got involved in at that time, did those wars increase the drumbeat for unification? I mean, they had conflicts with Denmark and then eventually France. Yeah, I think all of that is underpinned by this nationalist kind of craze. So nationalism, today we use the term a little bit differently than people did at the time. So nationalism in the actual sense of the word, as in people want nation states, meaning countries that encompass one particular culture or linguistic group, which is now seems fairly obvious because most of the world's now run in this way, but it wasn't in the 19th century, where people were still very much tied to individual dynasties. So rather than having the state as the kind of overarching framework, you had a royal dynasty that you know, each people would follow. And because now there's a, in the 19th century, there's a drive towards let's, let's be run by nation states or by state structures rather than a monarch, you get the same developments in France, for example, where there's huge issues kind of, do they have a monarchy? Do they not have monarchy throughout the 19th century? You get the same problem in Denmark, where the new king, when he comes in, Christian, uh, the, the fourth, I want to say, <laughs> Christian, <laughs> Is uh, has got the similar issue in that in the sense that people are sort of saying to him, well, look, you know, if, if your dynasty is so relevant, then show us that you can actually produce a, a strong kind of nation state around that. And so he needs to be, he, there's pressure on him to extend into what, you know, what basically what Germany or what Prussia, the other German states had kind of come to an agreement over the two, uh, Schleswig and Holstein, the two states that are in between 
Denmark and, and what the German lands are. So these conflicts, territorial conflicts, are there because for the first time people are sort of trying to draw active kind of lines into the landscape where one state starts and another one ends. And therefore, you know, Bismarck exploits those conflicts to Prussia's favour, but he doesn't, I would very strongly argue, he doesn't create them. They're there and he manages them to Prussia's advantage. What's the political power structure like in unified Germany between the Kaiser and someone like Bismarck? Bismarck very much writes the constitution to fit himself and the Prussian king, Wilhelm I, who becomes the German Kaiser. And so the idea is technically the Kaiser is the head of the state and sits right at the top and then is kind of the be-all and end-all of the, of the constitution. So all kind of draft laws originate for, for, from him, go through the entire system, but come back to him and he signs them. So in theory, nothing happens without the Kaiser and it's still very much a monarchy. But at the same time, Bismarck is managing the entire process as chancellor. So I would compare that, and I think I do it in my book as well, as kind of imagine having somebody who owns the shop, but can't or can't or doesn't want to run it because they don't know how to. And you install a shop manager and they basically know how the shops run and, and how it all works. So technically you can fire them. In practice, you're not going to as a shop owner because you don't know what you're doing. So this is a little bit what happens with, with Bismarck is that, you know, kind of Bismarck creates this kind of hugely complex conglomeration of, of kind of states as a federal entity now, as a federal Reich or, or empire. And knows exactly how it works, but nobody else does. And so technically, the Kaiser's in charge. In practice, it means Bismarck runs the show and only he knows how to. If we could talk about Kaiser Wilhelm II, he just seems really fascinating. I know that he was born, I think, with a deformity, if I'm not mistaken. And back then, that could be socially devastating. And then he's just an interesting person. What's your view of Kaiser Wilhelm II? Uh, how much time have I got? <laughs> um, yeah, no, he's, he's an interesting uh, character. As you say, that deformity, I think a bit too much has been made of it because you could obviously go go all like Freud on it and, and <laughs> bring everything back to his childhood. But it is it does play a role. So he's born basically because he was, when he was in his mother's womb, he was in the breech position, so like the wrong way around, basically. And when the English doctor, I might add, kind of tries to to help and yanks the baby out of the womb by his little arm. Uh, he damages some ligaments in his shoulder and effectively ends up paralyzing the arm, which then means Willem can't use the arm right from the beginning. And uh, it sort of doesn't develop properly. So it's a little bit smaller because the muscles and tendons don't develop properly. And he actually can't use it. So it is quite a, a severe disability. And that is indeed a huge problem at the time because there's still this idea that the monarch personifies the state and therefore any deformities at all or any problems with the monarch reflect on the on the state still and this also ends up reflecting very badly on his mother uh, Victoria who's, who's Queen Victoria's oldest daughter and therefore ends up causing all sorts of interesting psychological problems because she's English and obviously connected directly to the to the British royal family and now is in a position where her son, who was supposed to be this kind of glamorous, first proper, if you will, German ruler, because you know now the, the state is like 20 years old and the first kind of generation of Germans is coming through and he's disabled. So she blames kind of herself and him for that and is constantly trying to, to fix her son. 
Wilhelm takes that very badly. So you see this in his letters to his mother. They're quite heart-wrenching. So he will constantly say to her, like, why can't you just take me as I am? Why can't you just, you know, accept me the way that I, I am? It is what it is, sort of thing. Mm. And at the same time, Wilhelm has this kind of huge insecurity thing about that. So he's like hiding his arm in the glove most of the time. And on photographs, you see him sort of usually with the arm and the on the sword handle or or sort of behind his back so that people won't notice so much. He learns how to shoot and how to eat and, and all of those things just with one arm. But at the same time, it's something that people play on a lot throughout his life. So that's that's one thing. I would say it's not the only uh, aspect of that, but it does help create a man that's incredibly nervous and insecure in himself, but at the same time, totally brash and overly masculine and very sort of uh, like he has a point to prove effectively on the outside. And that's a, a very, very bad combination because he is impressionable on the one hand, wanting to constantly to impress people, but on the other hand, kind of very insecure on the inside. So, you know, it allows people to exploit that. We have modern politicians that um, sometimes have a image of strength and then are pretty soft on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> Or feel a inadequacy on the inside. Yeah, I make a pretty veiled, <laughs> veiled comparison in the book as well, but I'll leave it there. <laughs> Is it fair to say that the German people, maybe because the way that the Constitution was constructed, almost have like a cult of personality with the Kaiser? Yes. I mean, it's maybe a bit difficult to understand for us today, and certainly from an American point of view, where monarchies seem old-fashioned things, kind of outdated things that, you know, we should have left behind by now. But as you just saw with the with the death of Queen Elizabeth II, there, there's immense emotive power behind monarchs, um, just, just in and of themselves, even if they don't, you know, do very much. Like, you know, Queen Elizabeth is very much a, a figurehead rather than an actual monarch. And that wasn't the same with Wilhelm. But, you know, again, it's, it's kind of just the, the monarch is the head of the state, supposedly above politics, which again, Wilhelm doesn't obviously see that way. But it does mean that you have this kind of glow about Wilhelm that would be very difficult to replicate from a kind of ordinary politician who, who was kind of either elected or installed basically as a as a civilian, as a kind of normal person, if you will, you just don't do not get the same amount of kind of aura. And then it did help that Wilhelm sort of looked the part as well. He was very tall. Lots of people at the time, you know, describe him as kind of very impressive in his in his physique. So it's broad shouldered. Like I said, he could ride and, and shoot. Um, he was. It doesn't really come across on the pictures and the paintings as much, but he was like bright blonde as well. So people describe the sort of golden glow of his hair and of his moustache, which uh, is quite interesting as well. But that's one of those features that people point on. So both sort of physically and just by the way that he was the Kaiser, he represented what people wanted to see in the young nation. And then there's this remarkable generational skip as well from because his grandfather was Willem I. And then for a very brief period, you had his father, Frederick III in power just 400 days but then it skips kind of straight to the grandparent generation so it was a stark contrast when you think his, his grandfather who ruled kind of for the first 20 years not quite but like nearly for two decades was born in the previous century he was born in 1797 mm. you know and people were sitting there in the in the kind of 1880s and suddenly there's this kind of young handsome Kaiser coming in so that plays a huge role as well and it seems to befit the 
times of kind of rapid change of technological development um, of Germany growing in, in confidence in, in, in its economy. So yes, he did did have a huge amount of kind of charisma is the wrong word because he does it's not necessarily directly to do with what he does, but uh, he does have a, a standing beyond what politicians were able to in Germany. There's a rising tension between Germany and the other European states. I'm wondering, though, about his connection or his relationship with his grandmother, Queen Victoria, and his affection, if he has any, for England. So how do you juxtapose those two, an affection and a connection with England, for example, and then rising tensions on the other side? Yeah, I mean, that was exactly his problem. He, he couldn't reconcile those two kind of elements. So on the on the one hand, so let's maybe start with the family connection. So the fact that he was Queen Victoria's oldest grandson, and she, by all accounts, despite the fact that he was a bit of a handful, even as a child, you know, that, that affection was mutual. So there, there are these kind of really quite lovely photographs of her with Wilhelm. And, you know, she had like pictures of him up in at Osborne Palace on the Isle of Wight. And uh, he loved spending time there. And even when Queen Victoria died in 1901, Willem immediately rushed to Britain and, and was there at her, at her deathbed, holding her and, and very proudly told the story to, to his own children and grandchildren about how, how Queen Victoria died in his, in his arms. So there's that. Um, and because of that, he considers himself part of the royal family. So you quite often hear him say, my family, when he's referring to, to the British royal family. So that, for instance, when, when he's supposed to sign off during the First World War, that the first bombing raids happen on London, Zeppelin bombing raids, they're also very sort of crude technology, but the first actual kind of bombings of, you know, civil, deliberate bombings of like civilian settlements. He's reluctant initially to sign off because he says like my family, meaning the royal family, are in London and he doesn't want them bombed. So even in this kind of height of, of tension where the next minute he'll be sitting there talking about, you know, corpses six feet high that were amassed on the Western Front. There's still this kind of personal connection there to Britain. But on the flip side, that also is, is a rivalry directly for him. So he's constantly obsessed about the British Navy, about kind of the empire, British power projection as a, as a sort of, you know, world power as he sees it and wants to emulate that and rival it. And, and hence why you get this kind of very dangerous naval buildup, the meddling around in colonies and, and kind of their uh, struggle for independence that's beginning to emerge. And it constantly provokes kind of like a clash or a rivalry directly with Britain. You mentioned a military buildup. Does the military buildup and the nationalism rise at the same time? So I would, I would argue that nationalism was already there, but Wilhelm's problem is that once Germany is unified, it doesn't you can't perpetuate that in a perpetuity. You can't kind of continue to fight, say, France all the time. So what he's doing is using nationalism as a vehicle to try and keep all of those kind of different Germans that are now in the same empire together. So you have now got a third Catholic, two third Protestants. You've got all of those different, you know, somebody who's like born in the Rhineland will still consider themselves a Rhinelander rather than a, a, a German. And so, you know, trying to tell them something from Berlin is difficult unless you kind of make it look as though you're still all pulling in the same direction. And so nationalism is sort of used as a vehicle. So this works on the one hand internally. So people choose, especially Bismarck chooses kind of internal opponents like the Catholics, 
towards the socialists and says, look, we all need to fight together against these kind of un-German individuals. Or like Willem does it later, he goes, no, I don't want to do that because those Catholics and the socialists and the workers, they're all part of my people as well. And I want them all together. Um, so I need to find an external purpose. And that was the expansion of, of empire and nationalism and sort of building up a kind of view of there's still a mission to be achieved. We haven't reached the end of the road yet. And that's kind of the dimension that this takes on. Wilhelm also has this weird obsession with social Darwinism. So when you think that, you know, Darwin had only just come up with his ideas of evolution and, and the survival of the fittest and all that in the 19th century, and this was still very much an idea that was debated alongside kind of religious notions of how the world was formed. And Willem very much buys into the idea of kind of the survival of the fittest and struggle for survival, and then projects this onto nation states. So the idea that Germany is kind of like this part of, of kind of a European jungle and it needs to survive and it needs to grow. Um, and if it doesn't kind of reach the same heights as, say, Britain and France and, and Belgium and so on with their empires, then it will just perish again, especially as it's still relatively new. And that is another kind of driving factor behind the nationalism that, that he creates. That's an interesting perspective. I can see where he's coming from. If you remove any artificial methods, uh, traditional monarchies and stuff that had kept other countries down, and you just let the system run itself, the arc of history seems, because of the resources, the, the structure, the culture that Germany was going to rise in power, similar to the United States. You know, the United States, if you, if you remove some of those restraints of the world order and you just let the economy and modernization and industrialization take hold, the arc of history was going to bend in that direction. That's certainly what he, how he saw it as well. So, and, and another huge influence actually came from America as a, a naval captain, um, Alfred Thea Mahan, who wrote a, a book that was rather influential, which basically argued that sea power is the way to sort of national survival and, and national growth. And so Wilhelm sort of looks at that and thinks, fine, I want Germany to survive. I want it to, to be the fittest, the best. And Thierman argues, well, then you need a naval power to, to expand and you need to fight for resources internationally because you will run out of resources. Which also, when you think, you know, there's not all of these massive factories now and, and exploitation of, of coal and iron ore and all the rest of oil as beginning, you know, obviously with petrol and, and so on becoming a, a necessity. So there is this kind of idea that you need to fight with others worldwide to A, have resources available for that ever kind of expanding economy and B, markets. And he buys into the, the Teerman kind of philosophy so much. He has the book translated into German and then given to all the naval captains and handed out to politicians and so on and so forth. So he really does buy into this kind of idea of it's necessary for survival and, and believes in it so much that he obsesses over it and, and it drives his policy and that of many other people. For the colonization, is that just because the, the nature of what powerful nations were doing at that time? And does the German colonies lead to any development of nationalism? Yeah, it's interesting because Bismarck tried to counter that and he was perhaps quite unique, uh, not, not entirely unique, but certainly one of the few people in power who, who weren't kind of enthralled by the idea of, of building and having an empire. So he, he saw the danger in that, in that, you know, it's not from a humanitarian point of view, so don't get me wrong, he didn't sort of sit there <laughs> and have moral objections to it. But he did think that it would lead to conflict with 
with the other European powers, particularly Britain and France. And Germany was a brand new state, suddenly the largest state in Europe, and it frightened a lot of people as it was. So he said, like, what we need to do is just sit there in Europe and become a European power right at the center. Let's just be the kind of strong sort of central focal point of of Europe, of continental Europe. And that was something that both Britain and France and also Russia and Austria could live with. When you then get this colonial craze everywhere else, you know, German industrialists are talking to their colleagues in Britain and in in, uh, France and so on and so forth. And they're all kind of going down the route of you do need resources, otherwise you'll run out of resources eventually for your factories. And same with, you know, the the products that were being made. It's easy to forget that capitalism was a relatively new thing, the idea that you're constantly producing stuff and selling it. And the idea was, well, you know, I've I've produced so and so many pots and pans, eventually everyone's got one, what am I going to do? I I need to sell it, kind of, you know, find new markets for them. So they were all of the opinion that both they and Germany will perish if they don't get it. And so they set off by themselves. So this is individual industrialists and, and kind of private businesses and just bought bits and pieces, particularly in Africa, of land as kind of private colonies. So they weren't German colonies. And then they found out pretty quickly that actually the locals aren't overly keen to be constantly like exploited. Imagine that. <laughs> Their <laughs> lands basically swindled out of them. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> and their factories were being attacked and, and you know, they personally were attacked and, and people died. And basically they came back running back to Bismarck and saying, can we please have some soldiers? Can you help us police this? And initially, again, Bismarck tried to resist that, but the lobby grew so much that it was like a colonial society, for example, and various other kind of very powerful lobbies, that Bismarck eventually caved and put some of these kind of private possessions under um, state as a, as a protectorate to start with, and then they became colonies. And then once Bismarck was gone, kind of the dam broke, and both Wilhelm and the chancellors that he chose were, were very keen to build empires basically across Asia and Africa, and, and were less and less inclined to actually see what was happening there and, and this allowed kind of local sort of captains of these um of these countries and of these colonies to basically run riot and, and commit horrible crimes or you know including including genocide in those years prior to the first world war you know we've talked about the industrialization the modernization colonization the militarization of course Was it inevitable that conflict was going to happen between those European powers? Uh, Could anything have been done to avert war, or were the elements all in place and all that was needed was that single spark? That's a big question. I don't think it was inevitable. Tension was. So, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that all of that had to come to a head in some shape or form just because of the way that the old order was dying and a new one was emerging and that very rarely happens peacefully, not least because, so say, if, for instance, the Ottoman Empire was beginning to crumble, which caused immense problems in, in sort of East and Southeast Europe. Everyone wanted a kind of a slice of that cake and you end up with conflicts between powers that were very, very difficult to manage. Somebody like Bismarck just about still manage the whole process. So, you know, take as an example, the tension between Austria and Russia over this crumbling Ottoman Empire. Bismarck tried to keep Germany kind of aligned with both of them, even though they were drifting further and further apart. So he solved that solution by effectively 
allying Germany with Austria on the surface and then making a secret reinsurance treaty with Russia, which was so secret that he hadn't told anybody else about. So when he left office, people realized that that was lapsing, you know, and, and wasn't, weren't really sure what it was, what it did, and, and just didn't renew it, which meant that tensions with, with Russia were getting to a boiling point. So one way or another, I think that needed some sort of vehicle. I don't think this kind of chain of events that eventually led to an all-out European war was necessarily inevitable, because initially a lot of people assumed it was going to be a local war. It's by, it was by no means certain that Britain would get involved, for example, or the US for that matter later in, in 1917. So in many ways, you know, it's, it's a really toxic combination of kind of the alliances of militarism, of nationalism, of the economic tensions, of, of the empires beginning to, to cause friction, both within the empires themselves and within the countries that, that led them. So the short answer is I don't think it had to unfold the way that it did, but I think conflict itself was, it's difficult to see a diplomatic way out of that. What was the relationship that Germany had with the United States? The United States enters World War I in 1917. But in the decades before that, was there a positive relationship between the two? I mean, there's a lot of people of German descent in the United States even today. Yeah, that caused some interesting friction during the First World War. I mean, as uh, I probably don't need to, you, to lecture you and your, your listeners about the American response to the First World War, but the fact that there was so much reluctance to get in, involved in that, not, not least because of the inevitable alienation of, of sort of German people of German origins in, in the US who were voters. And, and therefore, you know, as a president, you just got to be careful at the time, kind of how far do you go with that? And can you really take sides? So certainly from that angle, there, there was a relatively strong relationship um, economically as well. So the uh, steel in particular and other kind of natural resources, there was a, a huge amount of trade going back and forth between the US and, and Germany as well. Not least because the people who had emigrated were quite often industrialists or people who uh, sort of wanted to invest again in Germany. And so the financial ties were very, very close between the two countries as well. It's also one of the reasons why there wasn't really much fear that the US would get involved in the First World War. So when you know, it breaks out in 1914, that's not even something that people kind of actively considered. It's really the events as they unfold with, you know, basically U-boats, obviously torpedoing the, the Lusitania and other uh, kind of trade ships. Um, and and the, obviously the Zimmerman telegram creating real fear in the US that this, this is a war that might actually come home and then sort of spill over into, into the Americas. So that tension is something I would say that the First World War creates rather than something that was already there beforehand that was a relatively amicable relationship between the, uh, Germany and Germany has got a never-ending fascination with the US as well so it sort of works both ways you got for instance Karl Mayer I don't know how well his, his novels are, are known in the US but he wrote kind of sort of typical cowboy and Indian stories uh, in the late 19th century it's one of still one of the best-selling German authors of all time um, had actually never been to the US when he kind of imagined what the wild west was going to be like and and took a very sympathetic view towards the sort of Winnetou's is is his uh, key character who's an Apache. And you end up with a kind of very positive depiction, which is quite different from the other uh, kind of colonial literature that's out there at the time. But yeah, so there's a is a fascination and I would say a kind of affinity between the two countries all the way up to the First World War. 
I think it goes both ways because last weekend I went to Oktoberfest here. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if we focus back on Prussia again and then put it in the context of what we were just talking about, maybe some of the disasters that happened. Of course, your book ends in 1918, so you don't get into the Second World War. But if we focus on Prussia and their implications and some of the disasters in the 20th century, to what degree are they at fault? I'm very reluctant to draw any straight lines there. Um, this is also one of those sort of key reasons why I wrote that book in the first place, because I think we need to take the Second Reich, as it's called, so the, this period from 1871 to 1918, seriously in its own right, as opposed to a prelude to Nazism and, and the Holocaust, as, as often happens. I mean, naturally, of course, uh, you know, nothing comes out of nowhere. It's not like you suddenly get the rise of the Nazis and, and all of the attendant crimes that happen out of a vacuum. So, you know, you do have historical roots there. But particularly on militarism and the also the insinuation that the kind of crimes that were committed in the colonial sphere were kind of precursors to the Holocaust in Auschwitz. I strongly read against that. This could have gone very, very differently, not not least because it takes so many people out of kind of their historical responsibilities. So this idea that that was inevitable basically excuses everyone who made decisions to either start things or comply with them later on kind of from their ability to make that decision, which I find a very dangerous kind of notion that these things are inevitable and that nobody could have stopped them or could have done something different. What I do think is that the First World War is kind of the turning point um, in, in German history. So rather than 1871, the sort of creation of Germany, I think it's the experience of, of war, of mass violence, of defeat, that instills a, a sort of seed, I think, in the German national psyche that is very difficult to to squash again in the 1920s. But again, even then, I would say, you know, when you look through the Weimar Republic, that in itself, events that happened during the Weimar Republic create the problems that, that come up later. And even then, it's a perfect storm. So I could name you like 20 reasons why the Nazis rise to power and why they later did what they did. And if you take any of those out, it's unlikely that it would have happened because it is such a kind of complex situation where things and people happen exactly at the time when they kind of have, have room to do so. So in many ways, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. Well, the final question I have for you today, and it's focused back on Prussia again, what does Prussia mean for modern Germany? It's an interesting one because it was abolished by the Allies in, in 1947 after the Second World War and thereby implicitly and explicitly held responsible for everything that happened. <laughs> People took, took a very dismal view of it for a long time, both East and West Germany. Uh, and there, because it wasn't there anymore and there wasn't anyone sort of to you know, defend Prussia or to feel even Prussian. I, I grew up literally in the Prussian heartlands right outside of Berlin. And I, it took me like it took school education to teach me what Prussia was, and I, I never grew up thinking of myself as a Prussian or as having kind of Prussian legacy. And therefore, you know, it, it took like various kind of reincarnations of, of Prussia on the German national kind of history for it to to become a, a thing again and have any sort of legacy. But now, um, I think we've reached a fairly healthy point where people are taking a huge interest in it again. 
So you have, for instance, all of the Prussian palaces, they're being restored as sort of tourist sites. The gardens are, are properly maintained. Prussian sort of cultural goods, so like music and, and art and so on and so forth, is kind of seen again in its own light as opposed to what the Nazis did when, when they kind of appropriated these things for themselves. And particularly looking further back, so, you know, even further back than the 19th century. So when you look at Frederick the Great, for example, and, and uh, his reign, you find that a lot of the kind of German democratic roots, so the, the sort of things that Germany is now proud of, didn't come out of 1949, but they actually go a lot further back. And I think a lot of that is due to Prussian liberalism as well, because you do have, for instance, under Frederick the Great, quite kind of, you know, enlightened ideas such as freedom of, of religion, freedom of association. He allows, for instance, large amounts of French uh, Huguenots or French Protestants to settle in Prussia when they're being persecuted in France. And so, you know, th there's all of that as well. And I think it just needs a more differentiated picture of, of Prussia. But it seems to me that that is, is emerging slowly, not least because people are kind of rediscovering Prussia as, a, as the whole thing, as opposed to just kind of the militarist bits that people choose to focus on. Well, Katya, thank you for your time today. And I think it's important. It's an important part of not just German history, but world history that you focus on. And it's an incredibly interesting read and the individuals that are involved are fascinating too. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. I would like to thank my guest once again today, expert historian and writer Katya Hoyer. And if you would like to get her critically acclaimed book, Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire, simply click on the link in the description below. Of the book, historian Andrew Roberts says, The best biography of the Second Reich in years. It will undoubtedly become the essential account of this vitally important part of European history. Our featured brew was Copper Legend Oktoberfest Lager from Jack's Abbey Craft Lagers of Framingham, Massachusetts. If you enjoyed our talk today, please share this episode with a friend. And remember, ask them to subscribe to the podcast. If you'd like more information on the books or the authors, like the History of Gogo -Go Facebook page. The music was provided by Rob Dufresne and the talented North Carolina band Bones Fork. And if you want information on the band and their music, click on their link. It's in the description below as well. Finally, to that legion of listeners from around the globe. Whether you're from Columbia, Missouri, or Massapequa, New York, or from Munich or Perth, thank you. There are many more great episodes on the way. So join us again next time when we talk, think, and drink on History of Go-Go. Mitten in Frieden über Feld und der Feind.